You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefe, Jennings, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Deck, Antonio, The Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. In the coming weeks, we're going to be introducing a lot of new players to our story. There will be the Pirates of the Round, like William Kidd or Henry Avery, but there will also be some major geopolitical players. We'll be talking about the rise of the Dutch and English East India companies and how they interact with China and Indonesia and India. And part of me wanted to just jump in feet first and give you the history of the Mughal Empire from start to finish, and, you know, knowing me, I'd start with Alexander the Great's invasion of India. Or maybe I'd take it back to the proto-Indo-European people of the Eurasian subcontinent, those who would go on to people Greece, Rome, Persia, and India. I would discuss the Indo-European Sanskrit word Hindush and the Indus River from which the Indian people through their contact with the Greek-speaking Alexander, would derive their English-language name. Or I could use a little restraint for once and begin with Genghis Khan and the Mongol Empire. But this show's been a little history-heavy lately. I can't even remember the last time we talked about some good old-fashioned piracy. And we're going to need to talk about some of that history eventually, but I'd like to begin with the pirates. I want to explore those ancient empires and trade corporations through the eyes of the pirates. And I just so happen to know exactly the right pirates for the job. This is episode 118, A Poor Meal. It took a Herculean effort for me not to name today's episode Pacific Adventure 2, Electric Boogaloo. See, we're returning to what I kind of consider our primary narrative a story that we left unfinished almost a year ago. The story of the Second Pacific Adventure. The story of pirates like John Cook and Edward Davis, Charles Swan, Francois Groenet, George Dew, Peter Harris, and William Dampier. If you're new to this story, you might want to go back and listen to episodes 61 through 71. But you don't really have to. We're going to do a refresher today, through the eyes of William Dampier. We left him a year ago on the Pacific coast of Mexico, but I want to talk about how he got there and who was with him and why. Dampier was English. He was educated and he chose a seafaring life. This was during the reign of Charles II and, you know, Charles was all about that seafaring life. Dampier sailed on a merchant cruise to Java in Indonesia. That was his first major voyage and he visited the East Indies. On that voyage, he very likely would have visited Cape Town, as well as Madagascar, and perhaps even Australia, before making landfall at Java. 
1673, William Dampier joined the Royal Navy, which was all the rage at the time. England was at war with the Netherlands. Dampier served under, although well, well under, James, the Duke of York, and he fought in a number of pitched battles against the naval forces of William III, Prince of Orange. After the war, William Dampier traveled to the West Indies, to the Caribbean, where he worked as a plantation manager in Jamaica, and it's not impossible to imagine him meeting Henry Morgan in a Port Royal tavern. Morgan spent a lot of his time drinking in taverns in those days, and Dampier spent a lot of time listening to old buccaneer stories. But the plantation life was not for Dampier. He left to go cut logwood in the Bay of Campeche in southern Mexico. Logwood cutting was the preferred occupation for out-of-work English privateers, and really they were all out of work ever since the war ended. Dampier met a lot of old buccaneers in the logwood camps, but most importantly he met two men, John Cook and Edward Davis. Cook, Davis, and Dampier are kind of a clique in the buccaneer world of the 1670s and 1680s. They sailed on the first Pacific adventure under Admirals John Coxon and Bartholomew Sharp. That voyage was well documented by three educated Englishmen. Dampier himself wrote extensively about wind patterns and flora and fauna. That's actually his claim to fame, more than being on the fringes of piracy. Dampier was a natural scientist. His findings, especially those about wind patterns, were studied and praised by members of the Royal Society of London. Sir Isaac Newton, for example, read his findings. Dampier's writings, or at least excerpts from his writings, were required reading for officers in the Royal British Navy up until the 1970s. Lionel Wafer was another educated Englishman on the voyage, but he would write mostly about the Guna people in the region of Panama called Darien. And then Basil Ringrose wrote the most comprehensive account of the Pacific Adventure in general. His was a day-to-day -day account of the goings-on, and it was actually edited and published later on under the title A Buccaneer's Atlas. And it gave precise details on cities and armies and fortresses, as well as waterways. If you were to go back and listen to those older episodes, you would hear me build a case for a conspiracy a conspiracy that stretched all the way from the decks of those pirate ships into the highest halls of the Stuart courts of England and Scotland. The conspiracy breaks down something like this. The Spanish Empire was dying. Their naval strength was a mere fraction of what it once had been. Their gold mines in the Americas were drying up, and the silver mines were producing less every year as well. But Charles Stuart of England knew that the real money was in coffee and sugar and tobacco and slaves. England was very interested in picking the carcass of the Spanish Empire. Everyone was interested in picking that carcass, but England was interested in the Pacific coast of South America. They would occasionally send a naval ship or two to explore that coastline, but the Spanish always chased them off, so what would any good king do? I argued, and I stand by this assessment, that the court of King Charles sent three educated men along with John Coxon into the Southern Ocean. They were to explore and document what they found there. Oh, and when I say Southern Ocean, 
I'm not talking about the actual Antarctic Southern Ocean. The Southern Ocean is just what the pirates called the Pacific. And if I say Northern Sea, I'm talking about the Caribbean, not the North Sea in Europe. Those two names are basically relative to the Spanish Main, which is what I will sometimes call Panama. I think the Stuarts very much wanted to establish colonies in both Panama and Peru, but he wasn't having much luck whenever he would send a naval ship to poke their noses, and they were too high profile. So instead, he chose a group of professionals, men who were experts at sneaking in under the noses of the Spanish and then getting out alive, some of the most accomplished privateers of the war, who were now, ostensibly, pirates. That's the best way to get the information he needed without A, spending any money, B, risking in one of his big, expensive ships, or C, risking an international incident that could and probably would result in war with Spain. I'm saying that Dampier, Wafer, and Ringrose were all sent along on that first Pacific adventure as incognito agents of the crown. And moving forward, we're going to be working under the assumption that I'm right about that, because I totally am. The only incident about the Pacific Adventure of note, for today's episode at least, is the loss of one of their guides in the Juan Fernandez Islands. The Juan Fernandez Islands are a tiny island chain far out to the west of the coast of South America. They're small, but they contain fresh water and food. They're a necessary stopover for anybody who can't stop at one of the few ports on the coast of South America. The pirates of that first Pacific adventure stopped there, but they were surprised by a Peruvian ship, so they had to depart quickly. One of their guides, a mosquito man, was left behind when they departed. But eventually, the Pacific adventure would split up. Cook, Davis, and Dampier would sail back to Panama, where they would cross the Isthmus and return to the North Sea. There was a bit of drama there in which the French Tortuga pirates would betray them, but the English escaped, and John Cook named the ship that he captured Revenge. However, in the end, William Dampier sailed for Virginia with somewhere between eight and twenty men. Cook and Davis, though, continued to sail on board Revenge and menaced the West Indies. They captured wine merchants and the like for several years until they sailed for North America in 1683. You might remember 1683 as the year that Charles II passed the Jamaica Act, an act that allowed for the extrajudicial killing of anybody associated with piracy, so a lot of pirates were leaving the waters of the West Indies and sailing up north. William Dampier, well, a couple of notes about him. He actually had a wife back in England named Judith, but at this point William hadn't seen her in over two years. She was living with his brother back in England while William was attempting to earn his fortune in the New World. Now, that's a thing that really did happen, but usually those husbands would go home after the big voyage. You know, even if they intended to return to the West Indies or wherever they were attempting to make their fortune, they would drop off a chest of whatever money they had earned with their wife and hopefully leave her with a son. But that's not what William Dampier did. Instead, he lived with his very close friends on a plantation in Virginia that was owned by a kindly elderly dowager. 
Am I suggesting that perhaps William Dampier was gay? Yes, I am. Nobody knows for certain, but, you know, probably. But Cook and Davis were up a bit north of his location in Virginia. They were capturing some ships outside of Providence, and if future events are any guide, it's possible that Cook and Davis were receiving orders up there. There are certain New England officials who were in the habit of employing pirates during peacetime. And if Cook and Davis were employed on a voyage of exploration and infiltration on the first Pacific adventure, I see no reason to believe that they weren't similarly employed here in 1683. The best evidence of that comes from Charles Swan, but more on him in a moment. Cook and Davis appeared in Chesapeake Bay and made their way to the plantation on which Dampier was living with the other buccaneers from their last excursion into the Pacific. They told Dampier that they were planning another adventure into the Pacific and that they wanted Dampier to come along. Their ship, though, the Revenge, wasn't in great shape. It probably wasn't going to make it all the way to the Pacific. So instead of sailing directly south, they crossed the Atlantic over to the east to raid a few Portuguese colonies in Africa. There they liberated a slave ship of 18 guns and transferred the guns from the Revenge to this larger ship. That gave them a ship of 36 guns and a crew of 70, but they took on a number of slaves from the ship they had just stolen. They also kept around 30 women who had been prisoners on board the ship. Now later on, the pirates would let them go. In fact, not even a lot later on. They would let them go in Brazil near a colony of other freed slaves. However, John Cook named his new vessel Bachelor's Delight. And that does lead to some questions of the treatment that these women received. However, that's all speculation. None of our chroniclers go into that. Around this time, Bachelor's Delight met up with another English ship under the command of a pirate named Eaton. Captain Eaton told Captain Cook that he was following yet another English vessel, a much larger vessel under the command of Charles Swan. Now, Swan has an interesting history. He sailed under Admiral Henry Morgan back in 1671 when they sailed against Panama. But he was an honest privateer, and he turned into an honest merchant. However, while he was on a stopover in London, Charles Swan met Basil Ringrose in a pub. According to Dampier, Ringrose was broke, despite his famed atlas making the rounds. Swan was planning a voyage into the Southern Ocean, and then he miraculously happened to cross Ringrose, who would just happen to be a perfect guide. And in case my tone is not sufficient evidence here, I think that whoever may have been pulling the strings behind the curtain contracted Swan to meet with Cook and Davis and Dampier off the coast of South America and introduced Charles Swan to Basil Ringrose for that very purpose. No, I don't have any solid evidence to back that up, but there is a mountain of circumstantial evidence. Swan miraculously meeting Ringrose, for example, his entire plan to sail for the Pacific in the first place, the fact that he would go on to meet John Cook and Edward Davis there, and all of the other pirates that they just happened to meet in the coming months. There was a 
convergence of many different names coming together here. Plus, and this is the big thing, the ship that Captain Swan was master of, the Signet, was not Swan's vessel. It was owned by a bunch of investors back in London. A lot of those investors were very close to the king. And it was crewed by honest sailors who turned pirate at the very first opportunity. And then Charles Swan started sending letters back to London. And, you know, I'm not really sure how he got those letters off in the first place in the middle of hostile Spanish territory. But those letters were sent to nobles who owned his ship that had those connections to the king. He was begging them to intercede on his behalf with Charles II. You know, basically saying, hey guys, look, my men turned pirate. They'd kill me if I tried to stop them, but I just want to get myself and your ship and all of the profits back to London in one piece. So please tell the king I'm not a pirate. Try to get me that pardon. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. All of that shows me... You know, since I'm already looking for a lot of evidence to support my own theory here, that Charles Swan was very possibly working for somebody in the English government who was after further information about the Southern Ocean. Some of those rich, noble investors had interests in Providence, the very same place that I suspect John Cook and Edward Davis received orders to pick up William Dampier, the educated Englishman, to send them to meet Charles Swan along with Basil Ringrose. These men, who had deep interests in the colonial world, had a couple of years to go over the Buccaneer's Atlas and now wanted more information. They were sending these people back for a second look. Near the Cape, the two ships under Captain Eaton and Captain Cook met up with Signet and Captain Swan. They rounded the Cape of South America, at which point they wanted a break. So they stopped at the Juan Fernandez Islands. And when they arrived, they found their old friend. Their mosquito guide from the first Pacific Adventure was still there. He was thriving even after two years on an island. He'd made tools and built shelter, and he cultivated grain and fruit and even domesticated a goat. Now, we don't know his real name, unfortunately. The English said that he had no name and called him Will. And I'd just like to rant about some injustice here. 
The Juan Fernandez Islands were discovered by the explorer Juan Fernandez, after whom they were named, and we can accurately say that he discovered them because it appears that they had never been inhabited by human beings, so all that's fine. But the two main islands in the chain are named Robinson Crusoe Island and Alejandro Selkirk Island. One is named after Alexander Selkirk, who was marooned on Robinson Crusoe Island. The other is named after a fictional character based on Selkirk who was never marooned anywhere because he was fictional. Will, the otherwise nameless mosquito, gets no recognition at all. And yeah, I get it. The Juan Fernandez get a lot of island tourism because of their remote beauty and because of Robinson Crusoe. It's what they're best known for. A famous novel, one of the most famous novels of all time, is always going to be better known than some random mosquito who lived there for two years, but, you know, throw them a bone. There are a couple of other islands in the chain, tiny islands, but you could name one after Will. Or, I don't know, call it Willahandro Selkirk Island. But that's neither here nor there. Moving on. After their stop at the Juan Fernandez, Signet went ahead to try and trade legitimately. They were intending to head to Lima, where they hoped to engage in business. Bachelor's Delight, alongside Captain Eaton, engaged in a little light piracy. And then they started meeting up with more and more pirates, who just happened to be there for some reason. By the time they reached Panama, they met up with another group of pirates who had crossed the Isthmus. They had a fleet of small barks, but Cook gave them a ship of their own, one of his large Spanish prizes. That group included Francois Groenet and the journalist Ravneau de Lusanne. A few days later, they met up with Peter Harris the Younger. Now, I don't think that all of these pirates who suddenly appeared in the Pacific were part of the conspiracy, if there was one. I think actually quite the opposite. I think that if there was a conspiracy involving Captain Swan and Captain Cook, they probably were told not to bring a bunch of random pirates along with them. It was to be a small-scale affair. So they agreed, of course not, we won't bring any pirates with us. We'll just tell a few pirates to meet us on the far side of Panama. This whole voyage was... Well, you know when you watch an old movie from before you were born, maybe ten years before you were born, and you see a bunch of familiar faces in it? You don't know who they are exactly, but you might find yourself saying, Oh, it's that guy. You know, he's the bad guy from that one movie. I think he's a Nazi. This voyage was full of those sort of characters. Lesser-known pirates who barely deserve a mention here, but later on I know I'm going to be saying, and this pirate got his start on the second Pacific adventure alongside William Dampier kind of a lot. There are captains who will become notorious operating in the Red Sea that were regular pirates here on this second Pacific adventure. And we're going to talk a lot more about them at a later date, but right now I want to stick close to William Dampier. The two groups of pirates joined forces to undertake a couple of large-scale raids, most notably on Panama, but then they sort of split up. They were always kind of separate groups. After the raid on Panama, though, due to natural causes, John Cook died. Edward Davis, his second-in-command, took over as captain of Bachelor's Delight. 
They spent some time in the Gulf of Nicoya in modern Costa Rica, where they raided Spanish plantations for several months. This is one of the most fertile regions in the world. It had the opportunity to provide whoever owned this chunk of the world with coffee and bananas and pineapples. This is the very same region that the CIA would actively destabilize for generations. They did so to secure sweet, sweet profits for United Fruit and their monopolistic slave regimes there. William Dampier was writing detailed accounts of the weather patterns in the area, as well as troop emplacements and fertility. But I'm sure he wasn't a clandestine agent here. I'm sure this was only to sate his own curiosity. But around this time, the fleet split up once again. Most of the pirates, including Ravno de Luzon and that lot, wanted to cross Nicaragua, via Lake Nicaragua, to return home. It was the fastest way to get back home, but you wouldn't be able to take your ship with you. Davis, on board Bachelor's Delight, instead decided to round Cape Horn and travel back home that way. Dampier, though, left Bachelor's Delight at this time. He joined the crew of Captain Swan because Captain Swan had other ideas. They headed north for the Pacific coast of Mexico. Apparently, they intended to capture some of the valuable ships coming in from Asia, Swan had filled the men's heads with tales of indigo and spices, of cinnamon and nutmeg and cloves. Now, all of this stuff was worth a little bit less than it had been a hundred or so years ago, but they were still worth a lot of money. A good haul of spices and dyes could set the men up in, say, Virginia for life. However, off the coast of Mexico, there was none of that to be found. There were no ships that couldn't find any ports. There weren't even any cities. Really, all they found there on the coast were a few fishing villages. They even had trouble finding food up there. There were no cattle herds or fruit plantations, just fish and corn. So Dampier tells us that Swan decided to cross the Pacific Ocean and return home via the Indian Ocean, Madagascar, the Cape of Good Hope, and the Atlantic. He's saying that Swan wanted to circumnavigate the globe. You know, just a regular trader, nothing to see here, deciding to sail all the way around the world. Certainly no ulterior motives leading a man to cross a body of water so large that literally all the land on earth could fit inside of it. But, you know, I want to play devil's advocate here. If Swan was just trying to escape the stain of piracy, he very well might have thought that crossing the Pacific was better than continuing on with the pirates. He would be able to trade his goods in Asia and then return to England with more than enough money to please his investors and buy his way out of prison. But Dampier was eager to cross the Pacific too. I think it's equally likely that it was Dampier that talked Swan into this plan in the first place. Because Captain Swan had a hard time convincing his men to undertake the crossing and he had to know that he would have a hard time doing so. He was asking them to undertake a deadly dangerous task. He was asking them to endure storms and privation, to possibly endure starvation and even the possibility of madness. But everybody knew that Dampier was educated. They knew he was knowledgeable about wind patterns, and they knew that he'd been to that part of the world before. He assured the men of the signet that the wind would be kind. 
and then Captain Swan motivated them with tales of the riches of Manila, and the men came to the decision. They would cross the Pacific Ocean. And that catches us up to where we left off with this story almost a year ago. Captain Swan had 150 men under his command. 100 of them were on board Signet, with Charles Swan commanding, including William Dampier. It seems that Dampier might have been made first mate here. At least, he was somebody that both the men and Captain Swan trusted and looked to for answers. The former first mate of Signet, a man named Teat, was given command of a bark carrying 50 men. Together, these two vessels set out on the 31st of March, 1686. And at this point, now that we're back in the main narrative, I would love to go deep into this story, to get into the real nitty-gritty. And we're going to do that? But in the question of crossing the Pacific Ocean, how deep can we really get? I would love to convey the feeling of one of these crossings, as best as I can understand it at least, but really that would be so boring. I mean, that's the overriding sentiment that the men were feeling here. I thought about making a video, maybe. Video an hour, hour and a half long, where, you know, I could eat a bowl of grits. I could drink a glass of water that has sat out in the sun for a couple of days. I could maybe learn to try nautical knots. I could play solitaire, take a nap, stare into the camera, mutter under my breath about how appealing you're looking lately. Fit and healthy, oh, nice and plump, juicy and, and delicious. <clears throat> See, Dampier mostly writes about wind patterns and Italian miles versus Spanish leagues, and, you know, they did make good time on the voyage. Dampier did know what he was talking about. The sails were full for nearly the entire trip, but the men had only eight spoonfuls of corn a day. They started to grow sickly. Dampier, though, says he was feeling better and better with every passing day, just full of vim and vigor. And he talks about the water a lot, too. You know, the men were given a ration of water every day, but one man refused his water. Not every day, but every other day, maybe. However, he still relieved himself every day, and Dampier was perplexed by this. He goes into some detail about a guy that was caught stealing, and every man on board gave him a single lash and did a good job of it, too. But, I mean, that was pretty much their entertainment. Trying to figure out why this one guy kept peeing and getting to beat one of their friends. That was the entirety of April. And then into May. And the men started to go a little stir-crazy. I mean, right now it's close to the end of May, so think about every meal you have had for the past two months... And then imagine all of those didn't happen. Instead, you got eight spoonfuls of grits. Not even cheesy grits, just plain grits. Imagine everything you did over those two months and then erase all of it. The men were starting to grow a little mutinous. They demanded ten spoonfuls of corn instead of eight. Now, they had carefully rationed out their corn, but Swan knew that this was a difficult situation. He conferred with Dampier, who said that ten spoonfuls a day should be enough, 
but that wasn't certain. There were rats on board that they were unable to stop from getting into the corn. Still, Swan took the risk. He upped their rations, which was a good decision. The men were starting to eye him uncomfortably. Luckily for Captain Swan, around the end of May, they happened upon a reef that was teeming with fish. They spent all day catching fish and ate well, but that only lasted for a day or two. Once they set sail, it went back to corn, and then they only had four days' corn left, and then three days' corn left, and then two days left, and the men started to grow a little bit nervous. Swan noticed them looking at one another with a frightening glint in their eyes. Of course, they could eat the rats that were on board, but Dampier knew full well that it was never going to come to that. He knew something else was going to be on the menu long before the rats. But just in time, with two days left before they ran out of corn, Dampier spotted birds on the horizon and a cloud formation that suggested to him land. He didn't say anything quite yet, but he suggested the pilot move in that direction, and he felt a little bit safer for a time. When the lookouts officially spotted land, the men cheered. They celebrated. Swan approached Dampier and clapped him on the shoulder, giving him congratulations. But then he leaned into Dampier and whispered in his ear, Quote, Ah, Dampier, you would have made them but a poor meal. And then Dampier goes on, for I was as lean as the captain was, lusty and fleshy. End quote. Dampier was aware of a conspiracy on board to punish anyone who had suggested this voyage, should it come to that. They intended to eat the captain, and then, if they had still not found land, Dampier himself. They had arrived at Guam on 20th May 1686, their first sight of land in the Philippines. And yeah, I know that Guam's not in the Philippines, not as we understand them today. And they were really only sort of in the Philippines in the 1680s, but they were part of the Spanish Pacific Island Territory named after Philip II. And now that they are in the Philippines, as they were understood in the 17th century, we're going to have to talk at some length about the East Indies. But rather than just give that to you in an information dump, we're going to do so through the eyes of William Dampier and Charles Swan. Next time we're going to talk about the experience that Charles Swan and William Dampier had at the island of Guam. In doing so, we're also going to discuss the history of the island, and we're going to look at it through the eyes of two other explorers who made this voyage round the world. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, either by becoming a patron on Patreon, or leaving us a review or a rating wherever it is you listen to the show, or those of you who recommend this show to your friends and family, without all of you I wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. 
If you haven't checked them out yet, you certainly should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight